If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. Last week, we looked at a money parable that addressed the fear and anxiety that come from not believing that God knows what we need. And this money parable exhorts us to use what we have to accomplish what God desires. Young ones, little theologians among us, as you listen to this, you're going to hear Jesus talk about the main character of this parable, and he's actually going to hold him up as an example for us to follow. But there's something wrong. See if you can tell what's wrong with this. What doesn't belong here? Luke 16, starting in verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, Then how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes again, give us sight, so that we might see your gospel in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I have childhood memories of summer Shakespeare in the park. My parents would take me and my brother and sisters, this is how they cultured us, they would take us down to Fair Park, to the old band shell that's still there, and I think the same two-by-four wooden benches are there that were there 40 years ago, no more splintered and rough than they were then. And we would go down there in the evenings for summer Shakespeare in the Park, and I can remember enjoying the first 30 minutes of each production. That's because that's when my mom would open up the bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken and the homemade cookies and the ice-cold drinks and pass them down the aisle, and my brother and I would feast there on the bench in Fair Park. But then we would settle in 
with the bard for a hot summer evening on those splintered wooden benches in that band shell. And I have to say, I was not really drawn to the plays, especially 400-year-old ones. I mean, come on. I was 12 years old. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? I always thought that if a girl ever talked to me like that, she would be wondering that for a long time because I would not be coming back. But I did go back, partly because I didn't have any choice, and partly because some of the plays were modernized. They, they sort of made some sense in 1980s Dallas. And one of them was The Taming of the Shrew, that Shakespeare comedy about Petruchio, the Italian gentleman, and his courting of Caterina, uh, I guess was her name, that stubborn and obnoxious shrew of a woman, and Petruchio's shrewd means of taming her as he courted her. And it was actually funny, even to a 12 or 13-year-old boy at the time. Now, I have to confess to you at this point that having shared with you those childhood memories gets me nowhere for this sermon. I just like the title. It fit as a title, but it doesn't belong here at all. It doesn't belong here at all. That's actually partly the point, though, because there's something about this parable that, just like a Shakespeare in the park on a hot summer evening, doesn't fit here at all. This parable ought to make you do a double take. It ought to make you shake your head and look back at it for a second look to see what's wrong. Jesus commends a thief. He says to his disciples, Look at this thief. See what he does and do likewise. That doesn't fit. It doesn't seem to make any sense. And not only that, but he encourages us to use unrighteous wealth to increase our hope of heaven. What? That doesn't make any sense either. I mean, that doesn't fit at all. It doesn't belong. It doesn't belong because thievery and worldly goods are completely contrary to the nice, clean-cut, all-American image of a moralist trying to be a good Christian. We can be so content with our lack of filthy, dirty, nasty, thieving badness that we easily settle in comfortably to socially acceptable ways of dishonoring the king in whose kingdom we live. And Jesus says in this parable, that doesn't belong. You know, he has much to say, and all of Scripture does, of course, has much to say about money, both the hoarding of it and the generosity of it, and how either or reflects the state of one's heart and the nature of where one is in regard to the gospel. And the Bible is realistic in its treatment of the equal dangers of both poverty and wealth. You know what the proverb says, give me neither of them, give me neither poverty nor wealth lest I should steal and profane the name of my God, or lest I should be full and deny His presence. Both are dangerous, and the wealthy, like the poor, can go either way. You just heard moments ago about the rich young ruler. As we heard that reading in the Lectio Continua, the rich young ruler was a wealthy man, the fruit of whose heart was to grasp his possessions in place of heaven. On the other hand, Zacchaeus, you may know the story, was 
a wealthy man, the fruit of whose heart was to give generously of his possessions in view of heaven. Both of them wanted a gospel. Both of them wanted good news. But one was blind, while the other could see more than he might have ever imagined before meeting Jesus. Here Jesus appeals to the very common temptation, the love of money, to move us down the path of kingdom work as he addresses the resources for that work, the ways of doing that work, and the record that our work actually leaves behind. You must honor God by managing well all that He gives you because the resources that you have are yours for kingdom work. Notice how the parable begins. He says, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Not all parables are quite this allegorically simple. I mean, here it's fairly clear that the rich man is God. And the manager... Jesus speaking to his disciples. The manager is any one of Jesus' disciples. And the nature of their relationship is clear. One of them owns the resources, and the other one has been tasked with managing those resources to their best effect. It's a picture of the kingdom of God. Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom, and the kingdom has, though not yet come in full, it has come, and it is coming through the work of disciples who have his spirit and have his gifts to bring redemption to bear in the world. Now, you may not be aware of it on a daily basis. I'm certainly not. We forget these things easily. But every day you're working for God's purposes. You're working for him. He's the one you're serving. All that we have is his. All that we have is on loan, not only for our enjoyment and pleasure, though those are good things, but much more for the purpose of bringing the effects of his kingdom to bear on a broken world that requires it, that without it is hopeless. Jesus is telling his disciples with this parable that unless they look at their resources in terms of how they can be used to advance the kingdom of God, then they are falling far short of what's expected of them because the resources they have are theirs for the sake of kingdom work. Whatever your work might be, whether it's in the home or in the office, whether it's in uh, a school or on the road or in the city, daily you are working for God to bring his kingdom to bear. But many of us, instead of that, squander the resource he's given us for this task. He's given us money and possessions. He's given us abilities and positions He's given us relationships and experiences and much, much, much more. And what are we doing with those things? In the parable, Jesus, speaking directly to his disciples, observes that we often simply embezzle those things, as it were, for our own worldly benefit. The charges, after all, that are brought to this man in the parable are this. The man was wasting the master's possessions. Whatever that might mean, we don't know exactly, it doesn't really matter. Whatever it might mean, the man had redirected the master's possessions away from the master's purpose. And that was not the work with which the master had tasked him. In a sense, you might say that 
this parable tells you what to think of your life and your resources, much like a child's allowance. How many of you kids receive an allowance? Some of you young disciples receive one. I see a few hands that are not ashamed to strike up in the air. There are a few kids receiving allowance every now and then, maybe, from mom and dad. You know, it's money that's not yours. It's not earned, unless maybe you do a few chores around the house, perhaps, but you ought to be doing that anyway, right? So it's money that's not yours. It's given to you. And there are some simple rules that come along with it, probably. You ought to give some of it and learn to give part of what you have. You ought to save some of it for a rainy day, as we say, though, of course, here you're going to be saving it for a long time. And you have some that's left over to spend on something maybe that you need, or more likely, as a child, something that you want, because your mom and your dad, they get you the things that you need, right? So you can use your allowance to buy things that you want, and you might learn any number of lessons in the course of that. You might learn what it means to lose or to squander your money. If you play with it like Monopoly money, you might lose it under the couch and it might might not return or your sibling might pick it up and claim it as their own. Or you might learn what we call buyer's remorse. That's a good lesson for a child. You know, you buy something at the dollar store that just looks like the greatest toy that ever was and you can't imagine not having it and so you use your allowance to buy it and then within a day it doesn't work. Because it was so poorly made, that's something you need to learn. It's not going to work. It wasn't made to work. It was made to sell. And so, you have buyer's remorse. That's something you need to learn. Or you might learn to save a little extra of that spending money or to give a little extra to some cause that seems important to you or simply to enjoy a purchase that was made well that you enjoy and are glad to have for a time, but then eventually you learn that things wear out. They don't last forever. All of those things are the exact same lessons that grown-ups find every day. Every day with the things that they have, with the allowance that God gives to them. And if they're wise, they will see that God has something bigger in mind than merely consumption. He's bringing His kingdom to bear on a broken world, and He's not doing it by magic, and He's not doing it by osmosis. Rather, he's doing it through the work of disciples to whom he's given resources for the job. You must honor God by managing well all he's given because your work is for his kingdom. But you're not without means to do it. Your honor of him is not just in the work that faces you, but it's in the one way of the world that's actually at your disposal. This is the part of the parable that doesn't belong. This is the part that throws us, or it should. It should cause you to do a double take. Jesus commends a dishonest man. Now, this man had stolen from his master, either directly or indirectly, somehow or another. He had stolen from his master. He had deceived his master by concocting this plan after having been fired. And, subtly, He even deceived the master's debtors, who surely must have assumed that this plan was agreed upon by the master himself, which it was not. This guy was a liar. He was a thief. He was a snake in the grass, as we say. That's who this guy was. 
But you have to recognize that there's no commendation for his dishonesty or his thievery or his greed. Jesus condemns those things just a few verses later. The point of comparison, rather, between the dishonest manager and Jesus' disciples is not his dishonesty. It's his shrewdness. His shrewdness in using what is at his disposal and what is at your disposal is shrewdness. He shrewdly applies the principles of the world, manipulation and greed and deception, in order to be rewarded according to the world's system. But the people of the kingdom of God often don't use the same shrewdness to apply the principles of the kingdom. Generosity, kindness, love, mercy, justice for the good of the kingdom. We don't do it. We don't do the same as the world does in that regard. We just don't. That worldly shrewdness, that savvy, street smarts or cleverness, whatever you want to call it, is at your disposal. And there are redemptive ways to use it. Chuck Colson. You all know Chuck Colson's name. Chuck Colson shrewdly used the resource of circumstance. He was, by his own guilt and sin, put in prison and did prison time. And out of that providence of God, he established a ministry to serve those who had been convicted of breaking the law, which is shrewd and remarkable and somewhat ironic, as though the rest of us haven't broken the law. And yet in his shrewdness, he used that resource of circumstance to create an opportunity for the kingdom of God to advance in a place where Christians rarely go. William Wilberforce shrewdly used a resource of ability, his political savvy, in order to have the slave trade abolished in England. It took him years to do it, but over the course of those years, with his shrewdness, he saw the kingdom of God advance. Now, your shrewdness doesn't have to be the stuff of movie scripts or historical fame. Jesus has actually made it very simple for all of us. In Matthew 25, he says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we do these things? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So if in your ignorance, the righteous would say to him, when did we do these things? We didn't even know it. If in your ignorance, such things honor God, how much more in your shrewdness? How much more in your conscious intention to use what is at your disposal to bring the kingdom of God to bear here and now? After all, simply finding what's broken and setting it right is actually effective kingdom work. And there's much of that to be done. It could be as small and local as filling a backpack with school supplies for a needy child. That might seem like a random thing to observe or offer, but you'll be offered that opportunity actually this morning as our deacons come with alms. You'll be given that chance by the deacons through the suggestion of a 
may I say, shrewd, though very gentle member of our own congregation who brought it to their attention, you'll be offered the opportunity to do that. Or it could be as big and international as funding the construction and the operation of an orphanage in Ecuador. I can give you a a contact number if that's your gig. Or it might be as ordinary and immediate as finding a visitor or a family that you don't know here this morning in this place and inviting them to uh, your hospitality in sharing lunch together. It could just be as simple as that, using what you have to advance the kingdom of God. Shrewdness doesn't have to be alien to us, although there is admittedly something very strange about it. The strangest verse here, I think, is verse 9. Maybe that's one that caught you off guard. It's one in which Jesus, speaking to his disciples again, seems to firmly plant his tongue in his cheek and then wait for their double take. What does he say? I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, I want to ask you, is that shrewdness? Or is that just manipulation? I mean, you've you got to ask the question. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Apart from the broader context, it, you might assume the latter. You might assume that it's just manipulation, but I think Jesus is just being practical here. He's simply saying that if you have worldly possessions, do good with them, such that... Gratitude abounds. Do good with them such that gratitude abounds. Friends will come from that, but do good such that gratitude abounds because that wealth will fail. And when it does, your generosity may simply have been the fruit of a more permanent glory. Because while your honoring of God may come through kingdom work and your shrewd efforts to do it, you have to see as well that the record of your management is the revelation of your creed. What one says that he believes about the gospel is one thing, but what one does because he believes the gospel is entirely another. Jesus explains. He says, One who's faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, Who will give you that which is your own? You honor God by managing well what you have, all that you've been given, because that management reveals what you actually believe about the gospel. Everybody believes in heaven. Everybody does. Believers believe in heaven, and skeptics believe in heaven, and outright unbelievers believe in heaven. Everyone believes in heaven. The question is, what is heaven? Is it just an existential experience ramped up by worldly wealth? Or is it the new creation that God will bring with the fulfillment of his kingdom? Is it merely a season of comfort with a pleasant view that you can just sit back, kick up your feet, relax, and enjoy? Or... Is it all things made right and the joy of seeing those whose redemption was made possibly possible, humanly speaking, 
because of your unrighteous wealth, because of your filthy lucre. Which one is it? What is heaven after all? Worldly people employ what they possess in view of what they believe is their destiny, their heaven. They work hard. They stay up late. They get up early. They learn the law and they use it to their advantage. They network with friends and friends of friends and friends of friends of friends in order to turn relationships back to their advantage at some point along the way. And all because they know what reward this world has to offer them and they want it. But those who are of the kingdom of God often fail to do this in regard to the kingdom of God. And why? Why do we waste God's possessions? We do it because our view of heaven is a beer commercial. I mean, 20 years ago, I remember a beer commercial that was on television in which there was a scene of six or eight men gathered around a campfire, and surely it was Colorado, with the mountains behind them and the cool mountain stream bubbling nearby on a cool summer evening. They were gathered around their fire with steaks sizzling on the grill, and one of them pulled up the cooler of beverages, popped it open, took out a can of beer and popped the top and said... Boys, some of you know it. It doesn't get any better than this. It doesn't get any better than this. Worldly people believe that. On a July day in Dallas, I'm tempted to believe it too. But worldly people believe that because heaven to them is an existential experience in the moment gained by the worldly wealth that they have in their hands that they can use to acquire it. And unfortunately, we believe the same most of the time, too. And the record of your management is the revelation of your creed. What you do with what you have shows what you believe about what God has for you. Some have said to those that they know, you are so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. This parable... Jesus uses to say, if you're not heavenly minded, then you are no earthly good. To some of you, God has given much in this world. He's given you much in terms of money or abilities. He's given you much in terms of intellect or opportunities. He's given you much in terms of social connections and privileges. God have mercy lest your management show that your view of heaven was no more than worldly wealth. On the other hand, to some of you, God has given little in this world, relatively speaking. You squeeze every penny out of every dollar that you earn with your back-breaking work, it seems to you. Your abilities to you seem limited relative to those that you see around you, and opportunities just seem to evade you. God have mercy on you. Lest your management show that you had no regard for what He might do with it. You must honor God by managing well all that He gives you. Because the resources that you have are yours for kingdom work. You don't work for yourself. You work for a kingdom that's far beyond you, that has come and is coming and is yet to come, and yet He's given you resources to that end. 
You must do it because the shrewdness of the world is at your disposal. Even skeptics use it for mere worldly gain. How much more, how much more ought one in the kingdom use it for kingdom advancement? And because the record of your management reveals what you believe about the gospel. In view of heaven, what will you do with what you have? God has put his possessions into your hands in your heavenly mindedness. Make them count. Make them count. Oh Lord, we pray that you would grant to us eyes to see your gospel. Would you grant to us eyes to see all that you've given to us in it? Would you grant to us eyes to see your kindness in filling our hands with your possessions so that we might use them to advance your kingdom? We pray, oh Lord that as we do that, we would see the great blessings that come from it, that we would see your hand at work, and that we might be shrewd in serving you with all that we have, with all that you've given to us, and with all that you would have us to do. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.